The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. we got the power to change the world. Many times we need to keep our health in check, but don't know what questions to ask or where to begin. We walk in blindly to our healthcare provider and walk out none the wiser and maybe even more confused than before. Can you take charge of your health and arm yourself with the questions and preparedness you need? The answer is yes. Welcome to Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs. This program will answer your questions and give you the best practices for facing your medical partner in good health. Now, here's Dr. Susan Downs. Hello. Uh, Welcome to Occupy Health with Dr. Susan. Are you concerned about getting Alzheimer's disease in the future? Do you worry when you can't remember a name or why you walked into a room? Does this spark off a concern about your future? We all know that medications haven't worked with this disease up until now. There's no known treatments. This is going to change, and we will tell you about this today. With me today, we have the honor of having Dr. Bredesen, who is working on a protocol to reverse Alzheimer's, and he appears to be quite successful at it. He's an internationally recognized as an expert in the mechanisms of neurodegenerative diseases, such as Alzheimer's disease. He graduated from Caltech, then earned his medical degree from Duke University, and then served as chief resident in neurology at the University of California, San Francisco, before he joined the Nobel laureate Stanley Prusiner's laboratory at UCSF as an NIH postdoctoral fellow. He's held faculty positions at UCSF, UCLA, and the University of California, San Diego. He founded the Buck Institute in 1998 and served as its founding president and CEO. He's had numerous television appearances. He is developing successful protocols to reverse Alzheimer's disease. Welcome to our show. Thank you very much, Dr. Susan. Okay, so what got you interested in what you're doing? I became interested in the brain when I was a freshman in college and read a book called The Machinery of the Brain. I get very enthusiastic and I've kind of been hooked on that ever since. Uh, And of course, one of the major problems in healthcare is why it is that we have been so unsuccessful with neurodegenerative diseases. You could argue that this is the area of greatest biomedical failure. Uh, We have some, obviously, some treatments for cancer that that often work. Um, But uh, if you look at neurodegenerative diseases, whether it's Alzheimer's or Lou Gehrig's disease or Lewy body dementia, on and on, uh, we have been very, very unsuccessful. So I became interested in understanding the fundamental mechanisms that drive these neurodegenerative diseases. And have you found some of these mechanisms? Absolutely. We've uh, had the lab up and running for 28 years now, and we've been looking at basic mechanistics and and especially related to Alzheimer's disease. And uh, you can see Alzheimer's disease very, very differently when you look at what actually drives it. Okay. Uh, We'll get to that a little bit later, but let's talk about the magnitude of this problem. Uh, Is this an increasing problem in the U.S.? 
Yes, uh, this just recently reported has become the third leading cause of death. So this is a huge and growing problem. Wow, that's pretty large. I mean, it's, I understand in women it's even more common than breast cancer. That's correct. So right now, uh, if you are a woman, your chance of developing Alzheimer's disease during your lifetime has exceeded your chance of developing breast cancer. And women do represent uh, nearly two-thirds of the cases of Alzheimer's disease. So it's certainly a problem for both women and men. But yes, it is more common in women than in men. Also, they represent about 60% of the caregivers. So this is a, uh, this is a, uh, a problem that unfortunately is disproportionately uh, negative for women. And there's a large percentage of us getting it, and, mo- and we don't know uh, which one of us is going to get it. So it's like 45 million in the United States? Well, if you, yeah, so about 15% of people will develop Alzheimer's disease. So if you look at the 325 million living Americans, about 45 million of them will develop it. Now, the number that's often quoted is 5.2 million are known to have Alzheimer's, but of course, that doesn't include all the young people who don't know they're going to get it. So of the currently living Americans, the number you really want to know is you know, how, how many of us will develop it? And the answer is, unfortunately, about 45 million currently living Americans will develop Alzheimer's. Wow, this is going to bankrupt Medicare. I mean, how do you think we'll get through this? This is exactly right. Uh, we are on track to bankrupt Medicare if nothing is done to prevent or reverse cognitive decline in Alzheimer's disease. Uh, and uh, so, so this is and this is currently costing the U.S. over $220 billion per year. So this is a major, major problem. And this is expected to go up. I think the estimates are like 160 million people will have it in the year 2050. Uh, by, well, by 2050, there will be diagnosed uh, around 15 million people or so. Uh, but as I say, there will be additional ones that will be at risk and will already be in the early stages. Now, so I've 160 heard a, million you mentioned is worldwide, yes. So oh, by 2050, worldwide. 160 million, that's globally, yes. Okay, now how does this connect to the APO status? Because I understand uh, genetic uh, factors, APOE4, um, it certainly increases the risk that one can get Alzheimer's. Correct. So there are many genetic risk factors, but the most important, just in terms of sheer numbers, is a gene called APOE4. So there's something called apolipoprotein E, which is literally a fat bucket. It is a molecule that carries around lipids, carries fats around your body, especially important in the brain, but also in other places in the body. And there are three different alleles. In other words, just like you can have uh, brown eyes or blue eyes, or you can have uh, green eyes, um, you can have apo, uh, lipoprotein E2, 3, or 4. And of course, you have one copy from your mother and one copy from your father. So you can be a 3, 3, or a 3, 4, or a 2, 4, and so forth and so on. The most common is 3, 3. But unfortunately, 25% of all people will have at least one copy. So there are 75 million Americans who have a single copy of APOE4, and there are 7 million Americans who have two copies of APOE4. If you have zero copies, then your chance of getting Alzheimer's during your lifetime is about 9%. If you have a single copy, 
it is about 30%. And if you have two copies, it's between 50 and 90%. So it's more likely that you will get it during your lifetime than that you will avoid it during your lifetime. Therefore, it's extremely important to find out and to get on prevention as early as possible if, in fact, you are positive. But if you are positive, that's not a definite sentence that you're going to get Alzheimer's. We can do something to reduce those risks. Absolutely. And that's one of the critical changes. Years ago, people said, well, don't find out if you're APOE4 positive because there's nothing you can do about it. In fact, uh, the reality is just the opposite of that. Uh, You want to know so that you can actually get on prevention. And in fact, many, many people with APOE4 uh, are in fact on prevention and doing very, very well. So you're absolutely right. It is not telling you this is not a death sentence. And in fact, it's very important to get on on preventive therapy if you are positive. And of course, important to be on preventive therapy if you're negative as well, but even more important if you turn out to be positive. Now, wasn't uh, APOE4 originally what we had like millions of years ago and the uh, variant of APOE2 and 3 are more recent additions? That is correct. So the primordial gene, the original, for all of us as hominids, starting between 5 and 7 million years ago, was APOE4. And so everybody, for 96% of our evolution as hominids, uh, everybody was APOE4-4, had the two copies, the very thing that puts us at risk today for Alzheimer's disease. And it was only in the last 4% of our evolution, so just in the last 220,000 years, APOE3 appeared, and then in the last 80,000 years, APOE2 appeared. And the difference is that the the protein is actually slightly different. Um, It's a single amino acid change, but it actually changes the shape of this protein, for example. Um, And it does change your risk. It also changes your inflammatory status. So people with APOE4 uh, have a slightly uh, increased uh, risk for uh, activating inflammatory pathways. Does that mean way back millions of years ago that if you stepped on something ucky or you ate something that was uh, not well preserved since they couldn't preserve things very well, that this was a biological mechanism to help protect in that age where they were so susceptible to insults and infections? That does appear to be the case. And this was actually suggested by Dr. Tuck Finch out of USC. And I think his point is being supported. So the idea is if you are going to evolve from uh, a, a from the simians who are living in the trees to the hominids that are walking along the savanna and stepping on things and puncturing their feet and fighting with their food uh, and eating raw meat with microbes in it, then what you want is something that is pro-inflammatory. This actually protects you. But as you age, then, in fact, this is, of course, uh, a risk factor. It's a risk factor for cardiovascular disease, which is associated with inflammation. It's a risk factor for Alzheimer's disease and in fact for longevity itself. So uh, people who are centenarians, for example, uh, do not typically have APOE4. So again, all of these things can be addressed. This is an example of what's called antagonistic pleiotropy, where something helps you when you're young, but puts you at risk when you're older. So why do you think uh, there's been this genetic change and obviously environmental adaptation on our part to go toward these new alleles? 
Well, I think, it, you know, that's one of the big questions. Why 220,000 years ago? Um, interestingly, this was a time uh, around the time that people were using fire. So it's possible nobody, nobody knows for sure what changed. But in fact, something allowed the survival of this ApoE3 allele, which does not have as much pro, not as nearly as much pro-inflammatory effect. So it may have been, in fact, uh, related to our ability to uh, to to cook things and get rid of the microbes. It may have been related to a more agrarian society. There are a number of things. It's not clear, but something allowed the appearance and then the thriving, really, because uh, ApoE3 is now the dominant allele. Uh, so something allowed uh, people with ApoE3 to survive starting 220,000 years ago. It sounds like a push-pull, a yin and yang between the APO4 and the APO3. I mean, one helps us in our, uh, uh, to go to longevity, and others help us in acute insults. This is exactly right. So what happens is this is a little bit like saying, you know, you can set up your cells, imagine them like a country, you can set up your country by putting most of your wherewithal, most of your resources uh, into war. Uh, that's a pro-inflammatory state. You're very good at fighting off infections. You're very good at, at fighting off intruders. Or you, alternatively, you can put most of your uh, resources into research and into recycling. Um, that's the longevity route. And in fact, that, that's exactly what happens with your cells. They can go one direction uh, or they can go another direction. And you can actually see this at the molecular level. There is a mutual antagonism between the inflammatory pathway that is related to uh, RELA and what's called NF-kappa B, nuclear uh, factor kappa B, uh, or it can go the other direction uh, through SIRT1. And this is SIRT is the thing, of course, that people take resveratrol for. Um, this is something that's associated with longevity and recycling and a change in metabolism. So, yes, you, there, there are these two alternatives um, that are available. Now, to summarize this, what I hear you say is that the APOE4 uh, is more like the warlike nation, uh, you know, putting a lot of money in arms, aggressively fighting off invaders and infections, and that's triggering off NF-kappa-B, which creates all sorts of problems in our body and is related to REL-A. I also hear you say that the uh, countries not putting their resources into war and just focusing on peace and longevity, that would be akin to the APOE3, and that is connected to CERT, S-I-R-T-1, which is why resveratrol and red wines are so healthy. So this is kind of yin and yang. Is that correct? That's correct, and they actually mutually antagonize each other. So as this, the cell goes down one way, it, it will actually pull back from the other way. So that you can think a little bit of APOE4 as being like North Korea and APOE3 as being like South Korea. You know, you can take your resources one direction or the other direction. Is there anything you can do to uh, affect the switch and which pathway uh, our genes go? Absolutely, so that you can affect it. In fact, uh, there are hundreds and hundreds of people who are doing exactly this. So you can get on a, a preventive program um, that will take your ApoE4 and actually make it so that you do not trigger this pro-inflammatory state. Um, there are changes in your lifestyle, changes in your diet, uh, specific herbs and supplements and things like this. So there are many things you can do. And then, in fact, of course, you can actually follow your status. So this is something, again, for the future that more and more people will be doing. So this is a large part of your, prob of your program. 
Uh, this is a this is a part of the program, but if, but of course our program is not just for uh, prevention; it's also for reversal of cognitive decline. And we've we published the first examples of reversal of cognitive decline in Alzheimer's uh, back in 2014, and then again in in 2016. Now I understand there's another mechanism involved uh, that uh, you know one of them is involved with like uh, various things to put us into health like thyroid and hormones and various things. That there's another yin yang push pull mechanism involved. Can you talk about that? Yes. So the 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 big picture here is that you have a whole set of signals that are synaptoblastic and a set of signals that are synaptoclastic. And it's, it, it's an imbalance between those. And so the easy way to think about this is imagine that you have two sets of contractors that work on your house. And imagine that you've got one set that does the demolition and the other set that does the construction. Now, there's a balance between these. But imagine that for 20 years, the ones that did the destruction always did a little extra for you. And the ones that did the, the construction as opposed to the demolition uh, w- would never show up. So the, the demolition ones are doing demolition, demolition, demolition. Um, the ones for the construction never show up. And so after 20 years, your house is shrinking. This is basically what happens in Alzheimer's disease. You have a whole set of signals that are synaptoblastic, that are making synapses, that are keeping memories, essentially. And then you've got a, another set that are synaptoclastic, that are pulling back. And when you're young, these work in concert. You're in great balance. You know, you're actively forgetting the seventh song that played on the radio on the way to work yesterday and all sorts of other things. But you're actively remembering critical things, you know, how to do math, how to do your job, how to speak, all these sorts of things. You are keeping these wonderful memories throughout your lifetime. So as you age, you there can be an imbalance. And critically, what, what we discovered was that what we call Alzheimer's disease is actually a protective response, which turned out to be just the opposite of what people thought. It is a protective response to three fundamentally different classes of agents. So your brain is literally trying to protect itself when you get Alzheimer's disease. And the three different classes are, number one, inflammation and infection. So if you get various pathogens like chronic Lyme disease or specific uh, fungi, uh, many, many different organisms have now been discovered in the brains of patients with Alzheimer's disease that are not in the control brains. But it's not just one organism. So you can think of Alzheimer's disease as being a little bit like the neurosyphilis of the 21st century, but it's from different organisms, not just from one organism. The second thing that triggers this imbalance, this change, is the just what you alluded to. It's the change in trophic support. We have dozens and dozens of molecules that are supporting our brain structure, and that includes thyroid, estradiol, pregnenolone, progesterone, testosterone, vitamin D, vitamin B12. You can go on and on and on. Nerve growth factor, brain-derived neurotrophic factor. These factors all support your synaptic maintenance. And as they are withdrawn, your brain actually activates production of amyloid and production of this synaptoclastic pathway and literally downsizes. And then the third is toxins, exposure to specific toxins, both biotoxins like mycotoxins that are made from molds and metallotoxins and other 
organic toxins, things like that, all of these different toxins, your brain makes the amyloid actually to bind to these toxins. So it protects itself from these three different classes of agents by putting out the very stuff that is associated with Alzheimer's disease. So rather than simply get a, get rid of your protection, what you want to do is to determine all of the things, all of the contributors from which your brain is protecting itself. And then you want to remove those contributors. And then after that, you want to remove the amyloid. So you want to look at the upstream inducers of this problem. Yes, because typically amyloid beta was associated with Alzheimer's disease and the, and the drugs that were targeting this uh, tended to fail. So this would explain why, because this is a protective measure. Right. So can think about this, for example, um, to some extent uh, as, uh, you know, an electrified fence that you're putting up here because there are uh, all sorts of, you know, zombies that are coming in. Um, you want to keep that electrified fence on. So getting rid of the electrified fence uh, does not help you. Uh, you want to first get rid of the things that are actually assaulting you. Then it's fine to take down the fence. Okay. Now, you mentioned three different uh, subtypes of Alzheimer's disease. I understand that the third type, uh, induced by toxins, has a totally different presentation. So how does it differ from the first two types of Alzheimer's disease? Yeah, that's a good point. So when we see people who have this problem due to inflammatory processes, and these can be sterile as well as infectious things like eating you know, too much trans fat, uh, too much uh, advanced glycation end products from simple carbs and things like that, uh, or, or it can be from a trophic decrease. These people tend to present uh, with the, the common presentation of Alzheimer's, which is amnestic. That is to say that the first thing that goes is the ability to learn new things. And people will often ask, well, why would your brain do that? Why would it actually decrease the ability to learn new things? And the simple answer is, you know, imagine that you had the choice of waking up tomorrow morning and you could either for, you know, wake up unable to speak or unable to calculate or unable to do your job, or you could wake up unable to remember the Friends rerun from tonight. You know, that's an easy choice. And so, in fact, the canary in the mind, that first thing that goes, just as, you know, in a company, if you're going to downsize, the first thing that goes is hiring new people. You say, okay, you know, we're doing okay, but we can't hire any new people. That's exactly what your brain does as it downsizes. And that's typical with type 1 and type 2. And you can look at the hippocampal volume in these patients, and the hippocampus will often begin to shrink. So you are losing the ability to store new memories. You literally cannot support the same network structure that you could in the past. So obviously, we want to then return the ability to support that structure. Type 3 is a completely different type of disease. And although some people with type 3 do have memory problems, it can happen, the common thing is that they present with so-called cortical presentations. So rather than focus on hippocampus, they tend to have parietal lobe problems. And this is, this is part of your cerebral cortex. And so the typical things they have are difficulty with calculations, difficulty with organization, so-called executive dysfunction, which can actually be frontal lobe or parietal lobe. But there is a specific type that is parietal lobe, which these people tend to get. Problems with so-called praxis, uh, learned programs, things like dressing, 
problems with recognition, recognition of faces, which is called prosopagnosia. So people will say, gee, I, you know, I can't recognize or remember faces anymore. All of these very different things, adding, subtracting, uh, word finding, problems with uh, finding words and speaking, uh, problems with visual perception. So all of these sorts of things tend to be the dominant things for type 3. These people also tend to be younger. So these people come in um, in their 50s often, which you know was unheard of in Alzheimer's disease uh, 30, 40 years ago. We rarely, rarely saw people like this. This happens all the time now. Um, we estimate that there are at least 500,000 Americans uh, who have this sort of presentation, this sort of problem. Um, so that is so-called type 3. And it's a very important to distinguish because if it's type 3, it, there is always an associated toxin you need or toxins. We often find these people have exposure to multiple different things. And they often um, have specific pathogens that produce the toxins. Um, so they can have a combination of a type 1, which is the infection side, and then type 3, which is the toxin side. For example, um, people who have stachybotrys or penicillium or aspergillus that actually produce specific toxins like trichothecenes or ochratoxin A or gliotoxin, um, things like that. So it's important because you need to identify these and remove them before the people will actually show improvement. Wow. And also this type 3 from toxins, it tends, they tend to be APOE4 negative with a negative family history? That is true. They often tend to be. Now, some of them will have a single copy of APOE4 um, and rarely two copies. Uh, but yes, you're right. The skew is that the people who are APOE4 positive tend to be pro-inflammatory, as we talked about earlier, and they tend, therefore, to respond quickly, um, and they tend to develop the problem on the side of the response of the, of the uh, inflammatory part, whereas the ones who are APOE4 negative tend to respond more slowly, and therefore, they end up getting overwhelmed by the, by the toxin exposure itself and tend to present as the type 3s. Wow. So tell us about some of these toxins. Where are we finding these toxins? I mean, you know, I mean, yeah, I mean, most of us probably aren't even aware of these. Yes, this is uh, sad but true. Uh, we live in a, uh, unfortunately, we live in a toxic world, and of course, we're finding this out more and more and more. The more we look, the more we realize the tremendous amount of exposure, and of course, most of us are dealing with it every day. Uh, the good news is there are better and better tests to pick these up. Um, you can, to begin with, you can see if you happen to be particularly sensitive to biotoxin exposure. And this, of course, was originally evaluated by Dr. Richie Shoemaker, who pointed out that there are specific HLA DRDQ haplotypes. In other words, your genetics will tell you whether you are particularly sensitive. And about 25% of people are particularly sensitive to these biotoxins. And we find that those are the people who are indeed at greatest risk for this type 3 Alzheimer's disease. And then you can look at these in the urine. So you can actually measure these toxins just as you measure other chemicals in the urine. You can measure specific mycotoxins like these trichothecenes and gliotoxin that I mentioned earlier. And then, of course, there are better and better tests coming out. And in fact, uh, Dr. Uh, Joe Pizzorno has, has done his life's work on looking at specific toxins that we are all exposed to. Dr. Ashley Bush 
from Harvard, now in Australia, um, has spent his career looking at how amyloid beta interacts with metallotoxins, things like copper um, and things like mercury. So many of us are exposed to high levels of mercury either because of our amalgam fillings or because of our eating specific fish like tuna fish that are very rich, unfortunately, uh, in mercury. So fish that are long-lived fish with large mouths tend to be the ones that have lots of mercury in them. Um, This is why we recommend if you're going to eat fish, that's great, fine, but eat the so-called smash fish. So, you know, salmon and mackerel and anchovies and sardines and herring. Those are the so-called S-M-A-S-H, smash fish. Um, so you want to stay away from the ones with uh, large mercury. And again, people will say, well, oh, you know, mercury is not an important cause of Alzheimer's. Well, for many people, it's not. But for that subgroup, in fact, um, it is an important cause and one that can absolutely be dealt with uh, and so that you can actually get this reversal of cognitive decline. So uh, good to know about these toxins. And again, there will be better and better uh, tests coming out to evaluate these various toxins. What if your salmon is farm-fed rather than a wild? Yeah, that's a good point. And people, of course, argue about farm versus wild. In general, yes, absolutely, you want to, if at all possible, uh, eat fish uh, that are wild-caught. Uh, you know, farming in, induces, uh, you know, introduces additional pollutants and things like that. Um, they're not necessarily high in mercury, but they are going to be high in other pollutants. And they're, in general, going to be relatively low in the omega-3 to omega-6 ratio. You'd like to have a fish that's got a lot of omega-3s, of course, um, and the farmed ones tend not to be as high. So the farmed ones might have other toxins that contribute to the uh, Alzheimer's. They, they may, that's true. Okay, so for the audience, swordfish and the big fish are the ones we need to avoid, and the small fish, who are at the beginning of the food chain, are less risk. It's the bigger fish that have been eating all the other fish that seem to have more mercury in them. So, yeah, so, and what about fillings? I mean, I've seen films that, you know, if we've got mercury in our fillings and a dentist picks at it or you brush your teeth, that each, with each of these emotions, mercury goes straight into your brain. So, you, yeah, you do increase your mercury. That's absolutely right. And so it is an, an absolutely a concern. Um, and many people are having their amalgam fillings um, replaced. And so, uh, but again, if you're going to have them replaced, have them replaced by a biological dentist who's going to take the appropriate precautions because it's during the replacement that you can actually get into additional problems. So, yes, uh, this, is, this is absolutely an issue, uh, these amalgam fillings. Okay. Um. So I understand also that it being developed is a research that will allow predicting Alzheimer's disease with just a small blood sample. Is that correct? So there, there, there are better and better uh, ways to diagnose Alzheimer's. The best currently is either with a PET scan, uh, or that can be a so-called FDG PET scan or an amyloid PET scan, or with a spinal tap and specific CSF, so looking at cerebrospinal fluid. Of course, most of us don't want to have a spinal tap, and especially we don't want to have repeated spinal taps. Um, so there are now better and better tests, and in fact, um, there is a very exciting new direction, which is called neural exosomes. So you can take blood. When you take a sample of blood in each one milliliter of blood, so you know very small amounts of blood, you have about 1.2 billion 
of these little exosomes. These things are little fragments of your cells which are expelled by your cells all over your body. And these are about 1 70th of the diameter of a little red blood cell. So they're little tiny fragments. So it's a little bit like uh, if you wanted to know what was going on uh, inside an impregnable mansion, you know, what would you do? Well, you might study the trash that's coming from that mansion to figure out what's going on inside the mansion. So if you want to look at what's going on inside the impregnable brain, you want to look at these little things that are sent out by the cells, and they circulate in your blood, surprisingly. And it turns out that about 10% of these uh, actually come from your neurons, from your brain cells and other nerve cells. And the good news is they all they have markers on them so that they can actually be evaluated. And Dr. Uh, Ed Getzel, Professor Getzel, has worked on this for years and published some beautiful work showing that you can look at a signature of Alzheimer's disease in the blood by looking at these neural exosomes. Uh, these should turn out to be very helpful for looking at the treatment of it. And in fact, we've used another test, which was developed by Dr. Milan Fiala at UCLA, um, which is called the phagocytosis index. You're literally looking at the ability of your white blood cells, just as they go, you know, they, these things eat bacteria to destroy them. They also turn out to devour your amyloid. So you have small amounts of amyloid in your blood, and then these things actually go around and chomp on it to get rid of it. And so what he found is that when you have Alzheimer's, you have a very poor ability for your white blood cells to snap up the amyloid. And when you are when you improve, you actually have a much better ability. Of course, there hasn't been a way to improve before, but the good news is um, on the protocol that we developed, we've, we've measured. We can measure in real time as people are getting better. And interestingly, as they go on the protocol, their white blood cells start once again to take up the amyloid. And as they go off it, they stop taking up the amyloid. And as they go back on, they start taking it up again. So you can actually follow these with blood tests in real time. One of our speakers, Emmy Berger believes that insulin resistance is a very strong component of Alzheimer's disease. So can you comment on the role of insulin resistance? Yes, and that's what we call type 1.5. So as I mentioned, you know, type 1 is more inflammatory. Type 2 is atrophic, withdrawal of atrophic support. Type 3 is toxic. When you have insulin resistance, and it's certainly an important contributor, but by no means is it the only contributor. We've identified about 50 different contributors. So when you have a uh, insulin resistance, and it's, it's an important one, no question about it, very common, it does give you some of the features of type 1 and some of the features of type 2, which is why we call it type 1.5. So what happens is, because you have uh, the insulin resistance, your body does not respond as well to insulin. And insulin is a tr one of the many trophic factors for your brain. So that gives you the type 2 part, because you don't get the trophic response to insulin. On the other hand, you now develop 
high levels of glucose, of course, and that gives you these so-called advanced glycation end products and glyoxals and other damaging agents from the chronically high glucose, and therefore your body develops an inflammatory response, so hence the type 1. So you combine these two into type 1.5, and the good news is this is actually the easiest type of all of the types to reverse the cognitive decline. Wow. And I understand that you can have insulin resistance in the brain where it counts, and you might not have it peripherally in the blood system. Right. And this is actually what Professor Getzel uh, published just a couple of years ago. So when he looked at the neural exosomes, what he was able to show is that you can actually see this central, you see the signature of insulin resistance in the brain. Even if these people didn't have peripheral diabetes, they actually had this signature inside the brain in association with Alzheimer's disease. Well, I understand you have a book coming out on this next week, so I certainly want to hear about your program and tell us about it. And yes. How, how long does it take to work? Uh, just tell us about it. Sure. So we have a book coming out that's correct from Random House. It's uh, already available on, on uh, Amazon. Um, we'll be out uh, next week, as you mentioned. Uh, and it goes through uh, all of the things that you need to do to evaluate, to get evaluated. Um, uh, it gives you also the, the, you know, the, the scientific background, the results from uh, last 28 years of basic research and looking at what actually drives this neurodegenerative process. Um, and then, of course, most importantly, what you can actually do to prevent it or to reverse the problem. Um, and initially, we found that re reversing the problem, of course, the earlier you start, the easier it is. But we've found since then that, in fact, even people, some people who are in the later stages uh, have actually seen some marked improvements. Um, it does take about three to six months. This, of course, this is a process that when you are developing the cognitive decline, it's been ongoing for years. Uh, by the time you get to full-blown Alzheimer's, um, it can have uh, gone on for 20 years. Uh, but before you get there, you go through a period of about a decade where you have what's called SCI, subjective cognitive impairment. You know there's a problem, often your spouse know there's, knows there's a problem, but you can still test in the normal range, quote normal. Now you may have fallen from you know, higher, you may have uh, lost some abilities, but you're still told, be, being told by the neuropsychologist at this point that you are quote, no, testing in the normal range. After that, you progress to what's called MCI, mild cognitive impairment, where now your test scores are also not normal, but you're still able to do your activities of daily living, care for yourself, et cetera, et cetera. So again, by definition, you don't yet have full-blown Alzheimer's disease. So then the third stage, when you actually develop Alzheimer's disease is when you begin to lose your activities of daily living. So you've been developing this for a long time. Again, the earlier you start, the better. You really need to live the program. You need to live this and just like with other chronic complex illnesses, the idea of hitting this with one simple drug is very naive. It's fine to take a drug, but you want to do it on the background of the rest of the program. And you want to live this for three to six months because if you've got insulin resistance, you want to restore insulin sensitivity. If you've got chronic neuroinflammation, you need to understand what's causing it, get rid of that, and then reduce the inflammation. If you've got exposure to toxins, you're not going to get a lot better until you remove that exposure and you actually drain the toxins, get rid of the toxins from your body. So no big surprise, you want to identify what is causing the problem 
all of the different contributors, and we typically see between 10 and 25 contributors for each person. So it's usually not just one thing. And then after three to six months, you will begin to see an improvement. And these improvements can be very dramatic. Can you give some examples of some of the improvements you've seen? Absolutely. So, uh, for example, uh, one person, uh, you know, was having struggling at work, having major problems, uh, and uh, you know, it took it again. It took him about three to four months. Um, he started seeing dramatic improvements. His hippocampal volume uh, was measured before and after, and dramatic improvement, dramatic increase. He went from the 17th percentile for his age to the 75th percentile, which essentially means that he had a larger hippocampus at the end of this than the average person. Whereas I bet that surprised the radiologist. I, the radiologist said they had never seen this before at the hospital with 75,000 scans that they had done uh, and uh, initially actually would not believe it until we took these to a separate uh, reader. It was read computationally by a computer program to show that this is absolutely correct. Uh, we have another person, for example, who uh, was able to go back to work, was able actually to open a new office, um, had neuropsych quantitative testing before and after, went from third percentile um, in, for example, one test to 84th percentile um, in the same test, uh, from uh, 13th percentile to 78th percentile in his auditory delayed memory, you know, so forth and so on, showed just dramatic improvements in his abilities. And of course, uh, he ha- he knew himself that there were improvements. His wife knew, um, his co-workers knew. Um, so there were dramatic improvements. And we see this sort of thing again and again and again. Now, there's no guarantee. Uh, some people have not responded. And typically, it's uh, people who either have not been compliant with the program. It's it's not an easy thing to do because it, it addresses these many different contributors or have not been evaluated to determine what the contributors are or have turned out to have, for example, specific toxins that weren't addressed. So, you know, it's it's not an easy thing to do, uh, and there's no guarantee. But for many, many people, there are improvements and often dramatic improvements. And as I said earlier, uh, we've published the first example of, uh, of uh, reversal of cognitive decline uh, with Alzheimer's and pre-Alzheimer's conditions. And what happens if people say, oh, I've gotten better, and they stop taking the protocol? Very good point. So we were hopeful at the beginning that once people got better, because this took 20 years to, to produce, uh, that uh, if they stopped it, they could probably stop it for several years. And unfortunately, that has not turned out to be the case. And our guess, and we, we don't know why that is yet, people, once they stop the program, it takes about 10 days to begin some decline again, and they go back on. And we've had actually one person who four times has stopped for various reasons. She developed a viral illness one time. Uh, she ran out of some of the things. Another time, she was traveling another time. So these things happen, um, and within about 10 days, she noted decline again, started back on, and did better again. Um, So you don't want to do that, obviously, because you can ultimately suffer uh, permanent damage. So we'd like people to do, you know, stay to do the, the, stay on to the extent that they can. And of course, the best thing is you want to keep tweaking this. So again, this is not like 20th century medicine where you take one pill and go home. This is 21st century medicine where instead of asking what is it, 
it's Alzheimer's, it's, you know, whatever, measles, whatever, that you're asking, why is it? What actually is driving this problem? You, mo- you know, want to get the larger data sets and actually look to see what is driving this. And so we continue to work with the people and continue to tweak and optimize and optimize. So in fact, there are people even after a few years who are continuing to get better with each optimization and with each tweak. So you've likened this to a roof with 38 holes, and probably now that number of holes has increased, whereas you you get a certain number of these holes, you're likely to show improvement. And what you just said, the more holes you can cover, uh, the higher chance to to improve. So uh, can you tell us about that? That's exactly right. So when you have a complex chronic illness, be it Alzheimer's or Parkinson's or cancer uh, or cardiovascular disease, you know, a, a century ago, most of us were dying of these simple infectious illnesses like pneumococcal pneumonia and things like that. Now, virtually all of us are dying of complex chronic illnesses like Alzheimer's and cancer and things like that. These illnesses are not due to a single agent like a pneumococcus. As I mentioned, there are dozens and dozens of things. And as you said, we additionally initially identified it was 36 that we initially published, but now you're right, it's it's closer to 50. Um, there will probably end up being something like 50, 60, 70. It's not going to be thousands. That's the good news. It's a relatively small number, but it's much more than one. That's clear. And so you want to identify all of these. And again, as you said, when you begin to treat this problem, doing it with a single agent only uh, buys you a very, it's, it's the same as taking a roof with 36 or 38 or 40 or 50 holes and patching one hole. It may be a very, very good patch, but it's not going to help you all that much. On the other hand, when you begin to patch all of the holes, now you start to see dramatic effects. And the good news is, it doesn't take a lot to patch some of these holes. Um, as you mentioned earlier, restoring insulin sensitivity. That patches a very important hole. And as you can also imagine, for each person, the holes are different size. So, simple example, someone who has a very low vitamin D level, of, for example, 15 or 18, which we see frequently, that hole, the vitamin D hole, is, is pretty large in that person's roof, whereas someone who's got a vitamin D level of 50, um, that hole is pretty much closed. So, we want to address all of these, all the inflammatory-related things, all the atrophic-related things, so forth and so on. Similarly, um, as Mayo Clinic uh, has published years ago, someone who's had a woman who's had an early oophorectomy, who so who's had a, a hysterectomy and lost her ovaries at the age of 40 or younger, and who has not had hormone replacement therapy or has had ineffective or suboptimal hormone replacement therapy, is at a huge increased risk for Alzheimer's disease. So that. In that particular person, that hole is large. If that hasn't been a problem, that hole is closed. So for each person, all of these things are going to be different size. And therefore, as you can imagine, the approach for each person must be personalized. So many people can't afford to go to a functional medicine doctor to look at things in this depth. So what labs would you recommend these people get just as a beginning? So all of this is, is, is covered actually in the book, you know, every single one of the labs to get. Um, the most important ones are going to be the ones that are related to these different classes. So you want to know your status of inflammation. So the best 
Single test for that is HSCRP, so-called high-sensitivity C-reactive protein. You want to know if yours is over 1.0. You want to know if you have a... Uh, a trophic withdrawal status. You want to know your estradiol, for example, your testosterone, your vitamin D. You want to know your homocysteine level, which is a reflection not only of, uh, that reflects actually multiple things, methylation, so how well you're doing with your various B vitamins and whether that's supporting uh, good health and metabolism, but also it is reflective of an inflammatory state. So you want to know your homocysteine level. And then you want to know your exposure to specific toxins. You want to know your copper to zinc ratio, um, which has been known to be related to dementia for many years, actually. Um, you want to know your status with mercury. Uh, you want to know your status with other you know, trophic supports. You'd like to know whether you are making enough BDNF. And by the way, the way to make BDNF is to go out and uh, exercise uh, on a regular basis. So many of these things, and, and go through all these things uh, in the book. And for a person that can't afford to you know, get a thorough evaluation, what general lifestyle approaches do you recommend? So the, you know, the standard ones, and, and again, the most important thing is to find out where you stand. So we recommend that, uh, you know, just as everybody knows that when they turn 50, they should have a colonoscopy. Well, anyone over 45 should have a cognoscopy. So, you know, don't, don't forget that other end of your body. Don't forget your brain. <laughs> uh, you know, let's, let's make sure that everything's good on both ends. Um, and uh, so you want to go and, and get these things evaluated. Now, you brought up an important point. What happens if you cannot afford to get or if you don't get these evaluated? Well, you are putting yourself at risk. So it's, it is important to get evaluated. And this will become standard of care in the upcoming years. People more and more realize that we all need to know where we stand with respect to our brain function. Very, very important because it's something that absolutely can be addressed and you can prevent and we all should prevent cognitive decline. And in fact, uh, we should be able to, uh, we should be able, in fact, to do, to decrease the global burden of dementia. This is a huge global problem, and we have the ability today to reduce that global burden of dementia dramatically. Now, in a worst-case scenario where you literally cannot even get it evaluated. Um, then there are some things you can do. You won't know exactly what's going to be more and less important. You're not going to know the size of the different holes in your own roof. But there, yes, of course, there are some things you can do. And they start with the basics, diet, exercise, sleep, and stress. Um, now, for some people, that will be enough. For some people, it will not. And people often say, well, you know, each one of these things is not a cure for Alzheimer's. No, not by itself. That's true. But they are all important contributors, and so you don't want to leave them out. So for the diet side, for the nutritional side, you want to make sure you want to drive yourself into a mild ketosis. You want to have a largely plant-based, but again, some fish and some and some uh, you know meat. Uh, uh, whether it's whether you happen to like uh, pastured you know organic chicken or whether you happen to like uh, uh, grass-fed beef, you know small amounts can be fine, but largely a plant-based 
mild ketogenic diet with fasting for 12 hours as a minimum between finishing dinner and starting breakfast or brunch. And if you are ApoE4 positive, you want to take that out to 14 hours, even 16 hours for some people. Um, And then three-hour fast before bedtime and after dinner. Uh, So those are the critical pieces uh, for uh, the nutritional side, and again, helpful to know where you where your nutritional stands with blood tests. But this is a good way to get started. Exercise um, at least five times a week. Um, you want to do both aerobic exercise and you want to do uh, some strength training because actually the strength training helps you to improve your insulin sensitivity Um, and then sleep Um, many people coming in four and five hours of sleep a night that is actually pro alzheimer's that is a that is an alzheimerogenic thing to do Um, we think in terms of you know we all are, are used to hearing about carcinogens that are in food and things like that there are many many things that are dementogens and we talked about some of the toxins earlier and of course one of the dementogenic things you can do and i have a whole piece written on you know how you can give yourself alzheimer's uh, unfortunately many of us are, are are doing sorts of these sorts of things currently one of them you can do is decrease your sleep to four or five hours a night you want to get as close to seven and a half or eight hours of sleep per night and of course you want to know if you have sleep apnea because this can be a major problem for sleep and and there's another thing called UARS uh, which is upper airway uh, resistance syndrome UARS which can also give you problems like sleep apnea but is not typically picked up on a sleep apnea test so if you're tired all day every day think about whether in fact sleep could be one of the problems and in fact while you are sleeping you are getting rid of your amyloid you actually doing yourself a favor while you're sleeping. Uh, And then uh, stress levels. Stress levels are huge, and of course, they have many, many different effects. They affect our various hormone levels. Um, They affect our inflammatory state. Um, They, uh, by high cortisol, can actually decrease hippocampal volume. They affect the status of your gut microbiome, and on and on and on. Uh, And many of us with these so-called leaky guts, which has turned out to be a, a huge problem and an important contributor to chronic inflammatory diseases such as Alzheimer's disease. Um, this turned out to be a very, very common problem. So We have of- two minutes left, so if you want to summarize and tell people how to get your book and any uh, how to get a hold of you, um, oh, we want to hear it. Sure. So just to summarize, Alzheimer's disease, incredibly common, uh, on the rise, Um, It is absolutely preventable, and at least in its early process, the cognitive decline is reversible. Um, You want to uh, get yourself evaluated. This is a protective response to various insults, so you want to evaluate yourself for those insults. And you can do this by seeing your physician. Um, There, this is summarized uh, in a book which is available from Random House, uh, currently available on uh, Barnes & Noble, on uh, Amazon, on on other places that uh, that such books are available. Or you can go to the website, mpicognition.com. That's M as in Mary, P as in Paul, I as in Institute, mpicognition.com. And if people want to see you, they go to the same website? Yes. And And we have... We've trained now 450 practitioners from seven different countries and all over the U.S. in this protocol. And you have training that is ongoing for uh, clinicians. 
Okay. Yes. Well, we're drawing to an end now, so this is certainly very important because Alzheimer's seems to be the scourge of the baby boomers. We're really worried about this, and this gives hopes to us. So, uh, audience, I recommend you consult with your uh, your physician, uh, go get information, go get Dr. Bredesen's book, and so you can help yourself and others, and be well. Thank you for listening. Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs can be heard live every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Here's to better health for you this week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.